Well, good morning. I'm so glad that you're here with us today, whether you're joining us online or you're right here in this building. I'm so glad that you're here. On the floor, way up in the top, good morning. I want to talk this morning about faith. Let me ask you a question. How do you think about faith? How do you think about faith? And how does your faith work? We just sang a song about it's your breath in our lungs. That is a statement of faith. That the very God of the universe, the Holy Spirit is inside of us. What a staggering faith claim. But I want to ask you this morning, how do you think about faith? One way to think about faith is this. Um, maybe you know this, this story, but uh, a guy named Charles Brondon back in uh, the 1860s was a trapeze artist. He would walk across the tightrope over the Niagara Falls. Now, this is before Netflix, before DraftKings. Some of you know what that is, and you shouldn't. <laughs> 25,000 people would show up, and they would bet on him. Is he going to make it across the falls or not? Give me your wager. And he was quite the showman, and he would, you know, he would walk across, and then he would, he, he, there's this famous story, he would take a wheelbarrow, and he would fill it with bricks, and he would walk across the falls. And then the crowd's going nuts, and he says, do you believe that I can walk across? Sure, yes, yes. Well, then he took the bricks out, and he said, well, then get in the wheelbarrow. He couldn't get a volunteer. I've heard different accounts. Some says his, his mom actually got in the wheelbarrow with him. But I want you to think about that story. I mean, there's a difference between belief and faith. Some people say, well, belief is to say, yes, he could do that. Faith is to actually get in the wheelbarrow and do it. And that's fine, but as I think about that illustration, I, I ask the question, why would you get in the wheelbarrow in the first place? <laughs> Even if I believed he could do it, I wouldn't get in the wheelbarrow. But is there a purpose? Is there a why? And another quick illustration of faith um, from um, the modern existentialist poets. Maybe you know these lines. Strangers waiting up and down the boulevard. Their shadows searching in the night. Streetlights, people living just to find emotion, hiding somewhere in the night. Don't stop believing. Hold on to that. You know the line? Feeling. You know the Journey song. I won't sing it for you. I was cut from the fourth grade choir, still scarred. But there's a sense in which don't stop believing. Hold on to that feeling. So how do you think about your faith this morning? How do you think about faith? How does faith work? Does your faith have a why? Does it have a purpose? And is there an object to that faith? When you look at the Great Journey song, it's just hold on to a feeling. I want to suggest to us this morning that our why is found in a person, Jesus Christ, and that person is found in a story, and that story is in the Bible, 
And Jesus invites us to follow him and be a part of that story. Now, we've been in the book of Romans, and Romans is really the epicenter of how we understand faith. If you're going to ask the question, what is faith? How do we think about faith? We go to the Bible and we go to the book of Romans. Now, let me give you a quick recap of where we've been and where we're going to go. Okay, a couple statements about where we've been. First of all, Romans 1 says we're all trapped in sin and need rescue. We're all trapped in sin and we need rescue. Romans 2, we can't rescue ourselves by trying to obey the law. Sin is one of those things that affects everybody. We can't do it ourselves. Romans 3, we talked about last week how Jesus is our rescuer. He's our justification. In other words, it's, it's his perfect record. It's a legal declaration. God looks not at our, our record, but God's or Jesus's record, his perfect life. God is our redemption. He has paid the price for our sin, and he is our propitiation. He is the perfect sacrifice. He has the, the, the wrath that should be for us has been removed so God can look at us with favor. Now today we're going to look at how God is creating a new multi-ethnic family based on faith. And as we dig into all this stuff in Romans that gets to be some heavy theology, I want to jump forward and give us a little bit of grounding a little bit of history here. Because I think sometimes, especially in the book of Romans, it's like, wow, there's all these concepts and, and that's great. But I want to remind us that this letter, okay, if we were to go to the end, Romans 16, we see that there was a wealthy woman named Phoebe who carried the letter. Paul, Paul wrote the letter. I actually one had his assistant actually pen the letter, gave it to Phoebe. Phoebe travels like six, 700 miles from southern Greece all the way to Rome, crosses the Adriatic. She has the resources to do this, and then gets to Rome, and there's probably five or six house churches. Maybe there's 150, 200 people total, men, women, slave, free, rich, poor, married, single, Jewish, Christian, Gentile, Christian. And they're asking all these questions. What matters most? What is at the core of our faith? And how do we all get along and focus on what's most important? I believe that in and of itself is a good message for our day. How do we focus on what is most important? So what's the core to faith? Well, we're going to look at Romans 4, then we'll make some application. Let me take you right there. Romans 4, verse 1. I'm going to walk through the Scripture. I'm going to make a couple observations, but I need to go through it fairly quickly so we can make some application. Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Now, who is Abraham? Okay, I've got to go all the way back to Genesis 12, and we see that there was a man named Abram, and 
And God called Abram and said, move from here and go here. I'm going to give you the promised land. You're going to be the father of many nations. This whole thing is going to start with you. This is after the flood. This is after the Tower of Babel. We're going to, God is going to work through this family. What then, shall, uh, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, according to human understanding? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Now we're using this term counting or other translations credited to. This is an accounting term. Okay, think of payments. Think of rent-to-own payments. That's our metaphor. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, Paul, Paul grew up in the Jewish tradition. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul knew all the Old Testament. Probably had it committed to memory. He's going to pull out two of the big guns of the Old Testament tradition. He's going to say, look at Abraham. Father Abraham, father of many nations. Look at David, the great king, the great warrior, poet, author of most of the Psalms. Here he's going to quote Psalm 32, which is after David and Bathsheba, after his adultery, murder, cover-up, all that kind of stuff. Looking at Abraham, looking at David. We're going to hold these up and see what we can do with these examples. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? This seems like a technicality, but it was a big deal then. Okay, what what is the basis for entrance into God's family? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so the righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. The timing matters. Before this, Abraham is credited with his faith. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith 
in order that the promise may rest on grace. Now, what is grace? Grace is a gift. Grace comes from the outside. Can you earn grace? You cannot. The promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now, let's think about this for a minute. Got to go Old Testament here. Got to go back to, to, to Genesis. This is Abraham. This is Sarah. They're both about 100 years old. Hey, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Well, from a fleshly perspective, that's a little challenging, God. You haven't given me a child. Now, there's a whole other story about that. So even as, as Abraham is being upheld for his faith, we see that his faith is not perfect. He will try to pass Sarah off as his sister, Okay, so he won't be killed. There are all kinds of stumbles in Abraham's faith. But against all hope, when everything looked hopeless, he had hope. Because Abraham compares the reality of God's promise with the reality of what he sees. No unbelief made him waver, verse 20, concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He is fully convinced. He is fully persuaded, fully assured. Verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, here's the text. Okay, here's the text. Now, there's a lot about Abraham in here. If you've got that background, it's, it's easier for you to see. If, if you're newer to this, again, this is, this is Abraham, this is Genesis, this is the great patriarch, the one from whom all nations would be blessed. So let's look at this example of Abraham, and let's see how we can apply it this morning. I want to try to make this as simple and concrete as possible. Do you like simple? Do you like concrete? Here's what I, I think sometimes we go wrong with the Bible because we, we try to make it so abstract. 
And I want you to think again. I want you to think of this picture of, of Paul writing this letter to Phoebe, these little churches. They're gathered around. They're trying to figure out life. How do we grow in faith? They didn't have this nice big church building. They didn't have, you know, all the comforts that we have. But they're trying to process what Paul is teaching them about faith. So how do you think about faith this morning? I want to give you two pictures. I want to give you two brains. This is not the scale. Two brains. Maybe it's a longitudinal cut. I don't know. People that know more about this than me. Two brains. Okay, I want to give you a picture of weak faith and strong faith. Which kind of faith do you want this morning? (laughs) Do you want a faith that wavers, that staggers? Or do you want an unwavering, strong faith? I believe that's what we all want this morning. Now, how do you get there? How do we think about faith? Well, a weak faith always puts me at the center. A strong faith puts God at the center. Again, we're going simple here. Weak faith is me. What is faith? Where does faith start? Faith starts with the death of me at the center. Faith starts with the death of trusting in me. That's where it begins. When I say I am no longer going to trust in me, I'm going to transfer my trust to God. That is the starting point of faith. There must be a death. There must be a death. I don't know about you, but I, I don't like that process sometimes. That is a hard process. Now, some of you today, maybe you've never made that initial step of faith. Maybe you've never said, Jesus, I'm ready to trust in you. Today may be your day to simply say, I'm ready to make this transfer of trust and pray to receive Christ. It could be you today. Others of us were somewhere on this journey of weak to strong faith. So let's break this down. All right, if we're going to be fully convinced, what does this look like? How do you think about faith? What is, what is inside your brain? Well, if I, if I start here, all right, if I start with me, well, one of the, the, the ways I might trust in me is I might trust in my own faith family story. I might trust in my own traditions. I might trust in the way that I was brought up. I might trust in all the traditions of my church, or I may have nothing. And that may influence the way that I think about my faith. When I start here, there's always insiders and outsiders. There's those who get it and those who don't. There are those who are for us, those who are against us. Part of what this whole project in Romans is about 
is opening this up. So I want to move from kind of my own faith family story to God's story. What is God's story? It's the Bible. It's the gospel. It's Genesis to Revelation that puts this all together that is one big story that points to Jesus. It's the good news that Jesus defeated sin and death and rescues all who believe in him. That's the big story. So we, 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 we transfer our trust from my story to God's story. I don't try to squeeze God's story into my story. My story is a part of this bigger story. So I've got that part. All right, and I might also look at this and I might say, well, a weak faith looks at my circumstances. How many of you had an awesome week this week? A few. Scale of 1 to 10, 8, or t- eight to 10. How many of you had a great week? Just a few. How many of you were like 0 to 3? Anybody negative? Okay. Sometimes we look at our circumstances and we say, oh, if my circumstances are good, oh, God is good. He's blessing me. Oh, my circumstances are, and I know some of you had really hard weeks. And sometimes we say, oh, I'm, 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 I'm cursed or God is against me. But I see through the lens of my circumstances. Now, if I'm going to shift my trust, this is how I'm going to shift it. I want you to think. Think for a minute. Instead of my circumstances, I'm going to focus on the one who is in control of all circumstances. So what am I talking about? God's sovereignty. God is in control. God is in control. Big story, big picture. What is the greatest reason, what is the greatest evidence that we know God is in control? It's in the text. What happened to Jesus? He rose from the dead. It's the resurrection. So I want you to think about whatever you're going through, good or bad, when I depend upon my circumstances for how I see God, it's going to be like the stock market. When I focus it here on the power, God's power, God's sovereignty, the resurrection, if Jesus rose, what's the promise to you and me? You too will rise. I've got to expand my vision. Weak faith depends on my moral performance record. My faith is dependent upon that. A weak faith says, look, you know, I I hate to admit it, but I'm pretty good. My record's pretty good. It's probably better than most of yours. Laughter is an appropriate response to that. What's that? That's pride. That says, okay, I've done something to earn it. Maybe God had to help me a little bit, but not as much as some of those others. Or I say, I'm so bad, I've got so much shame, how could God ever forgive me? 
But when I start with my performance record, it's a weak faith. It's going to waver. That's going to stagger. So what's the transfer here? Well, who had the perfect record? Jesus. This is Jesus's perfect record. Jesus died on the cross. His perfect record. This is our justification. This is what we mean. Not my record, not my performance, but Jesus's perfect record on the cross. That's the transfer. I got to make it. Now, I save the best maybe for last. I'm going to go back to journey. This is my feelings and how my feelings are connected with my faith. Can we rely on our feelings, my friends? Feelings will always get us in trouble. Okay, they can, they can, they can be lights that say, all right, check this out. Examine these feelings. But if I am dependent upon my feelings for my faith, I will be stuck in a weak faith. If I'm always dependent upon, well, I feel close to God, okay, or I feel like God wants me to do this, if it's just feelings, I'm always going to be stuck. Because I don't know about you, but my feelings can go up and down. I can convince myself of great things. I can be really discouraged if I fall into the trap of being simply led by my feelings. My guess is this morning I am not alone. So I would challenge you, examine your feelings for a minute. Now, a tricky part of this too is if I just have faith in my own faith, I will always have a weak faith. If my faith is simply in my faith, well, since my faith is so strong, great things happen. My faith is so weak, bad things happen. Who's in control? God is in control. If I'm always looking at it through the lens, well, this prayer didn't get answered because my faith wasn't strong enough. This healing didn't happen because my faith wasn't strong enough. I didn't get this job because my faith wasn't strong enough. My kids didn't turn out perfect like I thought they would because my faith wasn't strong enough. That is a pathway of doubt and a weak faith. God is in control. Now, when we think about feelings, this is God's love at the cross. It's the ultimate example of God's love for us. He sent his one and only son to die on the cross. So how do I transfer my feelings and my faith, my focus on me, to my focus on what God has done at the cross? Theologians out there, Bible geeks, you like these terms. This is a little bit about what propitiation is about. This is God's wrath removed. God now looks at us with favor. 
So this is the trust transfer. Okay? This is your diagnostic for a second. All right? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at this. I want you to think about this. Where is it this morning that you're trusting here and you need to move in this direction? Where is it? Where do you need to trust more? I want you to think about your week. I don't want you to just think about the abstract. But I want you to think about your week. I want you to think about your relationships. I want you to think about your work life, your school life. The way you look at the future. I want you to think, quite frankly, about your own sin, my own sin, our own sin, that clouds us and keeps us from seeing this. But I want you to think. I want you to think about your faith. And how does your faith work? So how do we get from weak to strong? There's part of this that is a lifetime journey. Now, I think there's a simple way that I want to approach it this morning. I want to give you just a simple thing to think about. Jackie was sharing in that song that we sang. There is a breathing in that's part of how we grow in our faith. I want everybody to do that. I want you to take a deep breath in. I want you to breathe in. Part of growing in our faith is what we breathe in. What are you breathing in? A brain will die without oxygen. What are you breathing in that shapes the way that you think about your faith? I love the way King David, David's a fascinating guy, <laughs> high highs and low lows. But David, as he was talking about the person who was blessed, he says that person delights in God's word, delights in God's law, and meditates on it day and night. There is a breathing in of God's word that aligns my heart and my mind around all this. But there's a breathing in, and I, I, if I don't have the truth that I'm breathing in, i got bad air, and it's going to be really hard for me to grow. But there's something about this word, delights. I hope this morning as you come to this place, as you as you hear God's word, as you sing these truths, that it's more than an obligation, but that it is a delight. It is a joy. The more clearly you see who God is through his word, the more clearly you see his love for you, the more clearly you see that he's in control, the more clearly you see that whatever tough thing you're going through right now, has a purpose. And you may not see it right now. Whatever those circumstances are, that's not the end of the story. But we've got to breathe in God's Word. 
Now, as we breathe that in, we also breathe out. And what do we breathe out? We breathe out God's love. As we take this in, God says the, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. God didn't give us this book to just talk about theology. He gave it to us to take it in so that we can then go and we can share that love. Because a genuine faith produces a life of love. God's Word tells us that as often as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we proclaim, we breathe out the Lord's death and we look forward to His resurrection. Let us pray. Father, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would work in us We thank you for what the bread and the cup represent. We thank you that we are justified, we are saved, not by our works, but by the work you have done for us. The work represented by your body on the cross. We're so thankful that you rose. We're thankful that this story is true, that it's real. And that you save us. And that you give us the power and the strength to grow and to love others as you have loved us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.